The name of that one, brand new stuff from Hill Country, kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thank you so much for being here, as there is no place I'd rather be than talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. So thanks for spending a part of your week with me. I do appreciate it. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Hope that you and yours are making plans to get into the great outdoors this weekend. Uh, I know we certainly are taking the wife, kids, uh, the dog to the deer lease. Got a picture of <laughs> one of the all-seasons feeders, literally 20 hogs at it. Uh, so we're going to go sort them out, get some bacon for the freezer. And I've actually had multiple people asking me to shoot them a hog uh, during this pandemic as people are deplenishing their stores of wild game at a much quicker rate than normal. Uh, I know our family certainly has. Fortunately, though, there's still three-fourths of a moose in the freezer and a half a nil guy and an axis deer, part of a whitetail, a couple turkeys. So we're not looking too desperate at the Smith house, but apparently some of y'all are. Uh, anyway, we've got a great show lined up for you. It's going to be a waterfowl intensive episode as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently canceled the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey for the first time in 55 years since its inception. What does that mean for ducks, first of all, and duck hunters? Secondly, going forward, is that lack of information going to affect uh, hunting regulations, bag limits, season dates, all that stuff. I don't know. But uh, Ducks Unlimited scientist Mike Brazier will give us his thoughts. And then uh, on top of that, we'll break down two species, one that has done quite well in recent years. A lot of Texas hunters probably are familiar with that bird as it has saved many a hunt for quite a few of us. And then another species that is on the other end of the spectrum, doing quite poorly. And uh, Mike has some interesting information as to why, and I'll just spill the uh, beans here, as to why the pintail has struggled so mightily over the last couple decades. So interesting stuff there from a science and conservation standpoint. Then we will welcome back our old friend Jeff Berry of Kent Cartridge, We'll discuss the uh, TK7 penetrator turkey load, why it is so lethal, uh, how it patterns as effectively as it does. Generally speaking, what goes into making a tight patterning load? Uh, the status of the ammunition industry. You know, we had Linda Powell of Mossberg on a couple weeks ago and got a look at how well the firearm industry is doing. Is that reflected into the ammunition's side of the industry. Uh, we'll discuss that. And then bucket list waterfowl destinations. Jeff has hunted all over North America and he'll give his number one uh, waterfowl destination and I'll give you mine. What's at the top of my 
duck hunting bucket list. A lot of nostalgia there from a historical standpoint. That's what's on the docket for today. Gonna be a good one, guarantee you that. Um, let's do a let's do a quick giveaway here before we take a break. I've got a Ducks Unlimited cap and shotgun case. It's one of those camo, you know, floating waterproof cases uh, that you you know not afraid to get muddy in the duck blind. And I've never actually had to use that floating part. I bet some of y'all have taken advantage of that once or twice, dropping your gun in the water. Uh, but yeah, we'll give away the DU cap and uh, shotgun case today. How about the year that Ducks Unlimited was founded? Email that in to Lone Star Outdoor Show. That's the year DU was founded. Email it in to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And you are entered into today's giveaway. And by the way, I'm sure I'll put Jeff on the spot later. He doesn't know this yet. But uh, yeah, we'll have a Kent Cartridge giveaway. I'll make Jeff pony up uh, a box of shells later on in the show. So uh, keep that in mind as well. Let's take a quick break. Coming up next, we are joined by Ducks Unlimited scientist Mike Brazier on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey guys, Cable here for Quiet Cat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. Quiet Cat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a Quiet Cat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me. Based out of Eagle, Colorado, Quiet Cat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit QuietCat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Jeff Jacobs, guitar man, into that jam. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer, our presenting sponsor as well. Uh, we're all set to talk some waterfowl conservation. But before we do so, this segment proudly brought to you by Stealth Cam's DS4K Max. It follows in the footsteps of its predecessor, the DS4K, which of course was the first trail camera to have 4K video and imaging technology. And the 4K Max just takes it to the next level. You can find it at stealthcam.com. Uh, well, let's bring on our first guest here today, making his return to the show. It's been a while, however. It's my pleasure to welcome Ducks Unlimited scientist Mike Brazier back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be back uh, on the show. Yeah, I did a little digging because uh, you know when you, you send out these requests uh, 
for a topic you you want to hit on and um, Ducks Unlimited is always so great sending us biologists and scientists and I was like I know Mike Mike's name uh, Mike Frazier and so I went back and, and Googled you on my own website, and <laughs> our interview from 2014 came up on pair bonding. So it's been uh, it's been a minute, but it's certainly great to have you back. Yeah, I, I saw your saw your email, saw saw your name, and it was kind of the same thing in my mind. I'm like, well, I, I know we've talked before, yeah. but and then until you said that 2014, I didn't realize it had actually been been that long. I actually had to uh, have you remind me of what we talked about. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's good to be back. Well, so, Mike, what does your job description uh, usually entail each spring? Well, uh, it usually it doesn't vary so much from one part of the year to the next. I'm, I'm actually in a different position now than I was whenever we last spoke in 2014. Mm-hmm. In December of 2018, I moved to a, uh, a new position within Ducks Unlimited. It's waterfowl scientist. I'm at Ducks Unlimited's national headquarters in Memphis. I'm actually at the house right now, but right. <laughs> I'm sta- I'm stationed uh, at, at headquarters in Memphis, and this is a position that's designed just to bring some additional science capacity to the organization at a national level. A lot of our science capacity, science staff that we that we have uh, in Ducks Unlimited is actually in our regional offices. We have some directors of conservation planning, managers of conservation planning, in some of those regional offices. But we, in addition to our, our chief scientist at headquarters, we have an ecosystem services scientist. That's Dr. Dr. Ellen Herbert. Mm-hmm. Of course, our chief scientist is Dr. Tom Mormon. Yeah, and Tom's so done quite a few times. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then the position that I'm in now is just an added waterfowl science capacity there at the national level that I work with our science staff across the country and just do a lot of different things related to communicating the science and helping apply it to some of our conservation planning and priorities within the organization. Perfect. Well, you know, this time of year is, is also about the time that ducks start producing ducklings. And a big part of understanding how each species is doing is through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey. So, first of all, why is this survey so important from a a scientific standpoint? It is the barometer for the, the status, as you as you alluded to, the status um, of our uh, waterfowl populations. Duck populations are primarily what are surveyed through this uh, through this particular survey. There are other surveys that uh, that are used to try to get at the health and status and trajectory of goose populations, but but this is it. This is the big survey or duck populations in North America. And, you know, if, whenever you're managing a population of wildlife, anything, there's some key pieces of information that you need. And one of the most important is, of course, just knowing what the status, what the population size of, of it is. And then importantly, you want to know how that population size is trending through time. And there's all sorts of other pieces of that population, male, female ratio, age ratios, all those other different types of things. But at a most fundamental level, you want to know what your population size is. You want to know the, the, the trend that it's on. That, more than anything else, just kind of gives you, uh, serves as a barometer on the health, as you might say, of that population and alerts you to um, some potential concern, mm-hmm. concern, certainly if it's a declining trajectory. And how is that data collected? 
Well, through the, the May survey, the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, I've actually never participated on this, but it is a collaborative survey between the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, state agencies, provincial agencies, and I think some other organizations may participate as well at some level. Mm-hmm. But it's a combination of air counts, uh, air-based counts, largely fixed-wing aircraft in the in the mid-continent uh, of the of North America, and I think some helicopter surveys in the eastern boreal forest, and then. In the in the mid-continent, they also have a lot of ground crews, which go along some of the same transects that are that, uh, aircraft fly over. And those ground ground crews will actually survey ducks on each wetland sample of these transects, and they'll use those to calculate uh, a, what's called a visibility correction factor. Hmm. I think the survey and that visibility correction factor is just designed to account for the birds that you aren't able to see from the from the aircraft because these aircraft are flying pretty low and flying pretty fast, you know, and so they don't see all the birds. And so the idea is that you can go back and uh, count those on the ground and make an adjustment. The survey is massive. The survey area is massive. I think when you combine the, what, what what is called the traditional survey area with the eastern survey area, and again, the traditional survey area is that portion of the mid-continent, uh, the prairies of the U.S., prairies of Canada, boreal forest up into Alaska, all told, that survey encompasses somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million square miles. So it's just massive undertaking. Mm. And so which states, um, you know, we always talk about the duck factory, the, the prairie pothole region of the United States specifically. Which states are being surveyed there? Because, And I'm only asking this because, you know, um, I don't really play a lot of golf, but last time I did, I... I stumble across some blue-winged teal that were nesting as far south as North Texas, right? So at yeah. some on some level, some of these ducks are missed just because the survey doesn't go that far south. Yeah. Well, the traditional survey area, this, let me, let me back up and just say the, the May survey that we're talking about mm-hmm. here, you know, has two components, traditional survey area in the mid-continent and the eastern survey area in the east. Uh, most of this survey occurs in Canada. In the states, um, Montana, North Dakota, and South Dakota officially fall within that traditional survey area. In the east, you have states, maybe it's only Maine. I'm not too familiar with this, but it's at least Maine that falls within the eastern survey area. Now, so those are the, the states that officially fall within this May survey. There are other states that conduct their surveys, conduct their own state-level surveys. I know at least Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and New York, Vermont, maybe Connecticut. I'm not actually sure on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Do they the submit the data States. to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service then? If I'm being honest, I'm not up to speed exactly on how those data are used. Uh-huh. Um, there are a lot of moving parts to this, uh, and I don't I don't operate in this uh, in this sure. sphere you know, on a regular basis. So some of those I know those states conduct them, and and I know, um, yeah, I, I know there are ducks breeding it. But there are ducks. To your other point, there are ducks that breed much farther south than those even those states that I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so kind of the farther you you get away from. Um, from those key breeding areas, you know, the 
the, the smaller the population sizes of the number of breeding ducks you have, and you know, just the um, the less there is a need to actually uh, count those ducks on right. an annual basis. Well, I imagine those teal that I run across breeding here, they're like partying partying in Argentina by the time the season gets here. Uh, yeah, because they like it hot, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, okay, well, that's that's certainly interesting. Two million square miles, a vast, vast yeah. uh, area that's being surveyed. This survey is used to set up the framework of, of waterfowl uh, bag limits and and season dates and and I imagine you know when things like uh, the pintail limit was reduced a couple years ago. Uh, you know, that was based off of the data collected from the survey. Yes, yes, absolutely. They they do use those those data um, to inform harvest regulation decisions. Uh-huh. So how big of an issue is it for Fish and Wildlife to have canceled the survey uh, this spring for the first time since its inception in 1955? I think that comment says it all. It's unprecedented. They've never done this. So conditions had to have been you know, incredibly uncertain. The, um, the, the seriousness of the issue had to be beyond anything that we had ever seen before uh, to justify the, the cancellation. So you know, just from that standpoint, it is a momentous event, like so many other things that are kind of happening yeah. right now in the, in the era of COVID-19. Um, it's you know, waterfowl populations in North America are perhaps the best studied group of birds anywhere in the world. So, you know, from the standpoint of what are the consequences of this cancellation to our ability to effectively manage the populations, I think we can rest easy knowing that we have had over over six decades of research into these populations. There were actually some experimental surveys prior to 1955. So we've been trying to count these birds for over six decades. We have been monitoring their population status and their trajectory and their changes in relation to habitats and um, and weather and, and so forth for a long, 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 long time. So mm-hmm. one year of missing data is not going to jeopardize the health of these populations or our, or our harvest uh, or our har- harvest opportunities um, in the least. You know, I, I personally have the utmost confidence in our biologists at the federal and state levels, provincial levels also, to manage these birds responsibly, even in the absence of one year's worth of data. Um, so, no, we've got a lot of good people working on this. We have a phenomenal data set. So it does present some challenges. There's no doubt about that. But... Um, but, yeah. yeah, we'll get we'll get through this without any problem. So it wouldn't be a surprise to me if they did take a more conservative approach. You know, obviously not like like you mentioned, they're not going to cancel the duck hunting season or or goose season or anything like that. Well, about all I can tell you in that regard is kind of what I've what I've seen. Yeah. So I guess the first thing that let's let's make sure we're clear on. Hunting regulations for the 20, and you're going to be well aware of this, Cable, but just for your for your listeners, hunting regulations for the 2020-21 season, like this fall and yeah. winter, they are completely unaffected by the cancellation of the survey, mm-hmm. completely unaffected. Because a few years ago, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and states went to an alternative process where they started using data from the previous year, breeding season data from the previous year to set hunting uh, regulations in a given year. Uh, and that related to kind of the the complexity of this whole process and 
the fact that they were occasionally getting really close to the, the deadline for setting hunting seasons, and they just didn't like being up against that, you know, that that time crunch. So they ended up, and maybe there were a few other reasons that went into this as well. But, uh, but anyway, hunting regulations for the 2020-21 season are are not affected at all. Those are actually working their way through the approval process at different state and flyway levels. So uh, really what we're talking about is the 2021-22 hunting season. Right. You know, the Fish and Wildlife Service put out a a Q&A document to – because they knew a lot of people would have questions. And, again, about all I can say is is what is contained. I can sort of parrot what's in that document because Ducks Unlimited doesn't have a seat at the regulatory table, so we're not involved in these decisions in any way but what the fish and wildlife service said is they they do not expect hunting regulations next year to differ too much from hunting regulations this year now you are right in that anytime you have a gap in in the data set that creates an additional degree of uncertainty and so if we're operating on a precautionary principle you know where you'd rather be more cautious than you know than risky given a certain situation then yeah you could argue how there would be an expectation among or we wouldn't be surprised if they were a bit more cautious uh in in regulations next year but i don't have any indication that that's going to be the case what i've seen what i've read again just coming from the fish and wildlife services they're going to use data their, their stream of data um, their knowledge of how harvest regulations, how harvest affects waterfowl populations to kind of project what that uh, breeding population size would uh, would have been mm-hmm. this year. And then they would use that information within the existing harvest management frameworks to set regulations you know, next year. So I don't know that the additional uncertainty is going to be factored in there in any certain way. Because one thing we have to remember is that, you know, the the harvest management process is, it's not something that they can just change on the fly. You know, I do know this from having talked to Ken Richkes, chief of the division that, you know, they can't, they can't just change this process willy nilly. It's there's some part parts of it are, are dictated by legislation. Uh, Other parts are dictated by, by rules that are in the code of federal register. So, you know, there, there are certain things that they, that they, they can't do. They can't just change it at, at their whim if they wanted to. So I, I don't expect outside of just the, the biggest change being the way they are, they're, you know, uh, expecting to project or predict the breeding population size this year. I don't know that I expect big changes uh, from one year to the next. And we have seen some examples of, of that in the past, uh, but I think we'd have to admit those are few and far between. So personally, based on what I've read, based on my experiences and what I've seen you know, through the years, I wouldn't expect huge changes uh, in harvest regulations uh, next year. Certainly enjoying the conversation. There's still a lot more to get into here. So much information on on waterfowl populations and, and trying to understand them. Uh, are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? That's not a problem at all. I've got all the time you need. Good deal. And that segment was brought to you by the Vortex Impact 1000 Rangefinder. Uh, this thing is awesome because whether you're a bow hunter, it can range as close as five yards or 
you're a long-range rifle guy. doesn't matter. You can send it at up to 1,000 yards. That's the detection range on the Impact 1000. You can find it at VortexOptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Mike Brazier of Ducks Unlimited on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. All right, this is Phil Robertson, better known as the Duck Commander. This is the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I'm on a wood map, troubles in a frying pan, with the speckled belly goose and a mallard hand. Gonna eat my fill, drink my toe, then gypsy dance with the Cajun moan. Gypsy dance with the Cajun moan. William Park Green bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show down on the bayou, the name of that one. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Lone Star Outdoor Show today. It's great to be here talking outdoors with you. And today we're focusing on uh, waterfowl population numbers, uh, trends, and the potential impact of the canceled U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Survey, the uh, Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, which for the first time since its inception 55 years ago, will not take place, um, and we will pick it back up with Ducks Unlimited scientist Dr. Mike Brazier. But first, this segment, proudly brought to you by the new Lone Star Beer, Rio Hade Mexican-style lager. I've been uh, enjoying a few cold ones here and there. You won't miss it when you see it. It's got the bright turquoise lettering on the can. It's the Rio Hade from Lone Star Beer, Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. And uh, without further ado, let's pick it back up with Dr. Brazier of Ducks Unlimited. Uh, we certainly appreciate you sticking around. Absolutely. Thank you, Cable. You know, in, in my career as a duck hunter, which is only uh, 15 or so years, I've experienced more opportunity, you know, to be honest. When I first started, I think the limit was five ducks and uh, two wood ducks. And um, now, you know, you can shoot, I think we can shoot three wood ducks and um, six birds, and I'm I'm pleased that it has gone in that direction, uh, and I and I don't feel like they are, I don't feel like they've ever done anything that I didn't agree with, you know, from a conservation standpoint. If they say we we are struggling with pintails, then sure, re- reduce the back limit. Um, and I think all duck hunters are conservationists at heart, and and probably feel the same way. Yeah, and all these decisions continue to be debated. The models continue to be debated between the Fish and Wildlife Service. And I don't mean debate in a in an, in a uh, you know destructive kind of way. I mm-hmm. mean in a in a constructive way. People are it's like this ongoing peer review process where the states and the feds and the provinces and and um, they they all work together in this in this collaborative arena around harvest management. And there's this constant evaluation of the models of the data, and then there's also some uh, evaluation and peer review and and debate that occurs in academia, and it all is is 
folded into this idea of science-based management, where we try to understand it the best that we can how this system is working, how waterfowl populations respond to harvest pressure, how they respond to habitat, how those things interact. And then all that information is fed into these into these models. They're not perfect, as we all know. We see from models all over the news you know, this in this day and age that not all models are perfect. They all have some uncertainty, but we continue to work towards improving those. And and you know that's that's what we we see every year uh, in in some fashion with some of the harvest models. There seems like there's always one model or another that's undergoing some revision or or uh, review I should say mm-hmm. so you know that that also gives me a lot of confidence in the ability of our our state and federal partners to manage the resources they're not complacent they realize that uh, we don't have it perfect and we're going to continue to improve upon it with each additional year's worth of data and this is just another uh, just a bump in the road and they're going to use all that great data um, 65 years worth. Decision. So, yeah. That's that's right. That's yeah. right. And you're exactly right. We've had what is it like 25 years for the most, uh, for, where we've had essentially liberal seasons, something in that uh, in that range for you know the. Yeah, the, I mean, the, I don't know. The I hear the old timers talk about, and I say old timers, the guys that are, I'm see, I'm 38. Guys that are in their 50s, mid 50s. That had the uh, the point system, and they always they always talk about just how yeah. terrible it was. That's an interesting interesting point. We we've been actually reviewing some of that information, um, the pintail regulations, and I've been looking into that just for a number of reasons, just personal interest as well as some some discussions we've been having. And under the point system, and I didn't realize this, the point system. Uh, for I think it was the Mississippi and Central Flyways where it was where it was adopted. But in the Mississippi and Central Flyways, Drake pintails were worth ten points. Hen yeah. pintails were worth twenty points. So what that meant, if you had a one hundred point daily limit, you could shoot Drake ten Drake pintails. Now how crazy is that compared to where we are now? Right. So. And just to go back to what you said about the 10 pintail limit, you know, each one 10 points to get to 100, that's great. But the reason why the guys hated it was because if you shot one redhead or one canvas back or one wood duck, they were all 90 points. Hell, even a hooded merganser was 90 points. And then you're left with uh, just one more duck, and it can only be a 10-point a duck. I think I like it the way it is today better. Looking back on the history of waterfowl harvest regulations is uh, it's I find it I find it fascinating. It's an area that again I've never operated, never worked um, as an active member of that of those decision making groups. Uh, so I've always sort of been a bit distant from it. And so occasionally I get a chance to look into it and review it. And yeah, that was fascinating. So back in the days prior to adaptive harvest management, yeah, there was a lot of smoke-filled rooms. <laughs> the old timers, as you called them, would would sometimes refer to it as you know they would just get in there and they would they would fight it out. A lot of it was opinion based, and it was just trying to based on feeling and and uh, maybe limited or inconsistent data sets. That they would use to inform des- decisions from one year to the next, and I mean, there's there, there's just a long history of harvest regulation and the the adaptive harvest management process that we have right now. Although not perfect, and it doesn't perfectly emulate the waterfowl populations uh, that we have out there, 
uh, it has provided a degree of stability that I think we're we're seeing is is pretty useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can always be better, and we hope to see that as we go forward. But um, you know, everything can always be improved. Well, so there's there's two ducks I wanted to talk about specifically here, and one of them is the pintail. We've we've mentioned it multiple times today because it is such a well. Number one, it's it's a beautiful regal uh, bird. And number two, it's much maligned. It's it's always at the forefront of everyone's mind. And why, over the long term, has this specific species trended in the opposite direction from the majority of our, our North American duck species? That's an interesting question. And it's the pintail actually holds a spot in a story that has been very well studied and actually, I think, very well understood at this point in time. Uh, and it's always, it, it always, in this profession, it always excites you, makes you, um, it gives you a reward when you can begin to explain something that you didn't previously understand and you can, uh, you, and you can explain it with a high degree, relatively high degree of confidence. And the pintail is, uh, is one such example. The pintail populations, what pintails were once one of the most abundant duck species in North America. I think maybe second only to the mallard for a, a few of the early years of the survey. Uh-huh. Um, and then, Populations declined as uh, habitat. Can, I think the the drought of the of the 80s uh, really drove most duck populations to record low levels or some of the lowest le- levels that had ever been recorded since 1955. And so you kind of had kind of had this across the board decline in duck populations. Once the wet conditions of the 90s returned, most most duck populations responded favorably. The one that didn't was the pintail. And we could talk about this for quite a length of time, but I'll try to shorten this story. The the inconsistent response there between pintails and all these other groups of ducks puzzled the waterfowl management community for some length of time. There were some people that said, well, we just haven't had water in the right place. There's water in the right place, and the pintails will respond. They're more of a westerly, western prairie, short mixed grass prairie nesting species in Alberta, southern Saskatchewan. And Alberta stayed dry for some time, even into the 90s. And so some people were saying, well, it's just pintails haven't got water. Well, that turned out to still not necessarily be true. Once we finally did get water back in those areas, pintails didn't respond. And so, again, the, the short version of this story is we have learned from a series of very important research studies, some of which are conducted on the ground studying the behavior of pintails, some of which are based on remotely sensed data uh, that are looking at changes in agricultural practices, changes in land cover. Uh, we now know that you know you have this backdrop of grassland conversion, historical grassland conversion, and wetland drainage, and that's not good for any duck species. Mm-hmm. And so the pintail is no exception. Layered onto that, though, is this is a uh, is a change in agricultural practices uh, across the U.S. and Canadian prairies, and really across the Canadian prairies is where this uh, this hit hard for the for the pintail, and it's something called summer fallow. And back in the I think 60s or 70s, there was 20 to 30 million acres of summer fallow across the prairies, and that's basically these uh, fields that are idled. Well, they're not really idled; they're 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 in summer fallow. And what they would do is they would, you know, they wouldn't plant crops in it for a given summer. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so they would eventually, once you got into June or July, they would start disking those fields to control weeds and all that. But prior to that point, they were growing up in just residual stubble or residual veg. They were they contained residual stubble from the previous year as well as some um, just grasses that were growing up. And pintails would come back. They would nest in those, and they would have enough time between arrival and when those fields eventually get disked to pull off a successful clutch of eggs. So what happened through the years is summer fallow declined. Now, remember I said somewhere between 20 and 30 million acres in the Canadian prairies back in the 60s or 70s. Can't make money with and, your uh, property in, in summer fallow, I guess, huh? That's right. And so a number of things led to the development of something called continuous cropping. And basically what, you know, you're cropping the same field year after year. And so now what happens is that pintails come back to the spring, the, um, come back to the prairies in the spring. They see the stubble remaining, and they'll go nest in this stubble. But then, because nearly all of the fields are cropped every single year, all the nests that are, or most of the nests that are initiated in that residual stubble, get tilled under or plowed under. Now that's only part of the part of the the issue there because the, the other is predation rates are exceptionally high in those uh, in those spring seeded crops so mm. so it's it's that's that's kind of the uh, the cliff notes version of the the story the pintails have a fairly unique breeding ecology um, they they arrive early they don't re-nest as often they prefer some of this sparser cover, which is that kind of gets you this gives you this image of this residual stubble in, in uh, agricultural fields. They'll come back, they'll nest in those croplands at higher rates than any other duck species, and they're they're um, exposed to higher predation pressures and um, and destruction from agricultural agricultural operations. And and once those once those early nests get destroyed, they re-nest at, at uh, less frequently. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, but, but we've done enough work on that species over the past two decades that we everything kind of everything kind of uh, fits yeah. in terms of, of being able to predict what has caused the long-term decline. And the biggest issue is the change in agricultural practice, the decline of summer fallow. At least that's what we believe at this point. Well, and that brings up something interesting. When you change um, agricultural practice, like uh, you also impact predator numbers. Like, why wouldn't raccoons want to hang out with it where there's more corn? So you're gonna yeah, have more sure. more predators, more possums, skunks. I mean, all of it. And then you also look at how trapping has declined and is almost vilified yeah. now by the popular uh, sector of society. They they really look at and, and frown at on on trapping. And you know, the fur market. It's not what it was. So. Uh, there's so many things right. that go into that, but more predators, less people pursuing uh, their harvest, and, and that, I'm sure, has an impact on, on uh, the increased predation for these pintails as well. So. Right, and back in the day in the prairies when you had all these small farmsteads across the landscape, uh, you know, people were occupying those farmsteads, and I'm sure part of their daily operation was to try to keep the, the raccoons, the skunks, or whatever may have been there at the time, away from their dwellings, and so there were some active. Even if they weren't doing it for uh, for the furs and for the money they could get from the sale of those furs, they were doing it to kind of keep the raccoons and skunks or fox, whatever, away from their chicken chicken coop. Mm -hmm. Well, so many of those farmsteads have now been abandoned, 
and a lot of those remaining farmsteads just stand out there on the prairies and they provide ideal kind of um um lodging yeah. <laughs> you know upscale lodging for a lot of these predators that are now out there on the landscape now that's just one little observation that you will easily make if you ever travel across the prairies every one of these abandoned farmsteads you can see where there is some kind of critter that's that's making a den out of a rock pile underneath an abandoned structure in a hedgerow or something of that nature yeah how many how many den sites are exist across the the, the larger landscape and natural environments i don't know but nevertheless it's just all these anecdotes that you drive across the prairies and spend some time on you can see how things have changed and how our footprint has uh, has benefited some some of those predator communities you know it's interesting on a on a side note we talk about the boreal forest and it's important for uh species like my understanding is widgeon and and scop and and some of those species um like to you know that's where they make their their home their nest reproduce and you hear about the boreal forest and then I went on a spring uh bear hunt to Alberta uh, 4 or 5 years ago and I actually you know you got to see it firsthand as you're driving through the it's like you know thick forest and and every every little pothole had a a nesting pair of ducks on it it was cool to actually see it firsthand and and take it in and then yeah. just kind of like oh this this is what everyone's talking about yeah yeah i've actually never visited the boreal forest i've my experience with the boreal forest at least visually has only come from images pictures and books well it certainly is a beautiful place lots of mosquitoes up there if you're bear hunting during the spring it turns out uh we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to look at a duck on the opposite end of the spectrum, one that continues to trend up and quite honestly has saved many a southern waterfowler's day, that's for sure. Uh, we're going to get into the gadwall next. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Pulsar and the Axiom handheld thermal monocular little unit with big features. And get this, um, if you want to grab an Axiom, or any of Pulsar's monoculars, you'll save 20% with my promo code Lone Star underscore PL. That's Lone Star underscore PL. Gets you 20% off any Pulsar thermal handheld or binocular. And you can find the entire thermal lineup at PulsarNV.com. We'll continue the waterfowl conversation after the break with Ducks Unlimited's Dr. Mike Brazier on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. When did the land of the free Become the home of the afraid Afraid of the world, afraid of the truth Afraid of each other This ain't the country my grandfather fought for British Columbia is world-renowned for its beauty and wildlife, and Vancouver Island is revered as a magical place by hunters. Vancouver Island Coastal Bear Adventures specializes in taking mature trophy black bears with 18-inch minimum skulls in the 6.5 to 7.5-year range. They also have Roosevelt elk tags and only take Boone and Crockett bulls each fall. 60% of their guiding area is located on private land. So whether you're looking for a Boone or black bear, once-in-a-lifetime Roosevelt elk, or a giant cougar, they've got the hunt for you. Visit VancouverIslandBearHunt.com to book your hunt today. That's VancouverIslandBearHunt.com. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. 
In the market for a compact track loader? Then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatofDallas.com today. Flatland Calvary bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Other side of Lonesome, the name of that one. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today as uh, we are going to continue talking ducks and duck hunting and waterfowl conservation here with uh, Ducks Unlimited's Dr. Mike Brazier. Uh, Before we get into one of my favorite duck species, this segment of the show brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but If you're like me, you want it, right? We all do. Whether that's for running cattle, recreating, duck hunting, fishing, or just to get the hell out of the big city. Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers make that dream a reality for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you, and you can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into a duck that holds a very special place in my heart because it has saved my hiney from what? Otherwise, would have been a miserable day so many times. And I think for any southern hunter, who, especially if you hunt stock tanks or farm ponds, but the gadwall comes south even when the greenheads hang up in Kansas and Nebraska. So he's a reliable and, and usually willing partner for the duck hunter. And, uh, you know, Mike, I don't know why gadwall numbers to trend upward well above their long-term average numbers and and man i'm certainly glad that they are uh, because like i said they are a vital part of my duck season every year well when you started off i wanted to talk wanted to talk about a uh, another duck that had gone in the opposite direction that then and that in many years saves a texas duck hunter i thought you were going to be talking about the northern shoveler <laughs> I that kind of just joke <laughs> but uh, i i know those are they're doing quite well uh, in their own right Gadwall are a is a is a very interesting species. Now, what I can tell you about it, it is a strictly prairie nesting bird. If there's ever a bird, ever a duck species that has such a strong affinity for prairies, it's that one. Now, we we can say the same about blue winged teal by and large, but even they, in some instances, will venture out beyond the prairies. Gadwall are but they're just tied to the prairies. And I think, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you the exact right answer on, on this. I'm not even sure if we know the exact right answer on this, on this species and what makes it so different from the others that, that has allowed it to respond in such a dramatically positive way. Uh, whereas some of the others have it. Now, what we can do is go back to the mid eighties with the, with the farm bill, uh, at least on the state side, and and we can point to CRP as being uh, a a big reason why gadwall populations uh, took off. The same could be said for blue winged teal. Mm-hmm. Those two species benefited 
in a major way from CRP on the landscape, and they still do. Um, now, we hear all the time about, and it's true, about continued grassland loss conversion on the Canadian prairies and, and wetland drainage on the Canadian prairies. I'm actually not sure what the trajectories are for Gadwall between Canada and the U.S. It's, um, it's one of those situations where, you know, our attention, we within the, the water, like anyone, the waterfowl management community has limited capacity, whether it be personnel, research, financial, and most of the time when we have a choice between investing those resources into a species that's declining versus one that's increasing, we're going to go to invest in the one that's declining. And that's why we've we studied so much and learned so much about pintails. Scop are, are somewhat uh, are very similar in their, their declining trajectory over the long Long term, uh, but our understanding of exactly what's driving that decline, uh, or at least the longer term decline, is not as well developed as that for pintails. So, it's a topic for a different day. But gadwall are, you know, they nest later. We can we can start there. They mm. they're not early nesters like like pintails or mallards are. They do nest a little bit later. And so maybe there's something going on with the predator community, uh, with the timing of their um, of their breeding, of the gadwalls breeding, with the, you know, the, the emergence of alternative prey for predators. I, I, I'm not really certain is yeah. <laughs> the short answer. And I, um, I'm... Well, it makes sense, imagine. you know, to not be dumping precious funds into something that's doing quite well um when there's yeah, other ones it like has you been said studied, yeah. yeah it has been studied a little bit and we know uh, a fair bit about it but exactly what caused that difference in trajectory you know beyond the things that i mentioned favorable response to crp um uh, you know and it could be it, it could be that gadwall or this is just pure speculation here on my part, something I probably shouldn't do, but it could be that all the stock ponds that are emerging all across the U.S., uh, maybe because I know we see gadwall in those in those uh, wetlands all the time. Oh, that's where we shoot most maybe of there's them. Actually, right. Yeah. Maybe there's actually a, a benefit, carryover benefit there that we haven't even really measured yet. We know that wintering and migration uh, habitats are important for waterfowl. Well, fascinating but you're stuff. Right. We can we can certainly agree on the value of that of that species in our harvest. I've always enjoyed shooting uh, shooting gadwalls. A funny story there is we, we we went to Manitoba this past year in October, and we ended up shooting I think over our over half of our collective bag over five or six days with gadwall. So mm. typically, you, typically you don't think of going to Manitoba to shoot gadwall, but, uh, but they saved our hunt and, and that wasn't by necessarily by choice. And we would have preferred some of the other ducks that are more, uh, more well-known in Manitoba, the Shutaita Manitoba sort of. The ones with the green heads? <laughs> well, actually the ones with the red heads. We were actually oh. going for some canvas backs, but, oh, wow. uh, we ended up with some gadwall. Nice. But that's okay. Hey, one thing that I did want to leave you with here, though, uh, I, I wanted to revisit that, that the comment about the states that um, that conduct the survey and how those are whether they're used. So it was. I think I got most of those states right, but uh, I did look something up here really quick. And states like California, 
they also there's a lot of one thing that that some folks may not appreciate is that California actually has a large breeding population of mallards and gadwalls, cinnamon teal, um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, and and they do those numbers are reported in the annual document that the Fish and Wildlife. Wow, California is actually doing something positive in wildlife management. Who would have thought? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> no. There's a California provides a lot of fantastic waterfowl habitat. We have a lot of fantastic members out there. So yeah. Oh, there's no California. doubt. It's not. It's not yeah. their fault they were born in California. Um, so no, no, uh, no qualms with our California hunters <laughs> for sure. But the people running their uh, wildlife, by and large, it's a it's a running joke on this show. I'll tell you that. At least they're doing their part for waterfowl population uh, understanding. Uh, anyway, um, one other, I was going to tell you, you had a funny, uh, interesting piece of uh, um, experience with gadwalls there. And I was wrapping up a season, oh gosh, probably six, seven years ago. And I had purchased a uh, duck mount at a DU banquet. And it wasn't, wasn't like I bought the, you know, I, I bought it from the taxidermist. I bring him a duck, he's going to mount it. And the last, uh, the last weekend of the season comes and uh, had this little honey hole, this little one of those ponds. Um, it was on actually a, a WMA, and I took one buddy there on Saturday, and we smoked, a, uh, I think it was 10 bird limit at the time, so 10 gadwalls. That's all that came in, all that we shot, mm-hmm. and we we're picking up decoys. They're still coming in there. Next day, I take another buddy, and so I pile up, we pile up 10 more gadwalls, and I was like, well, I guess I'm getting a gadwall mounted because that's, uh, you know, <laughs> that's all we shot. So I had like... <laughs> Four or five beautiful Drake gadwalls to to pick from, and uh, ended up taking one of them to the taxidermist. And so the gadwall always holds a, a special place in my heart. And, and I think about times like that, and that's just one example of of many where uh, those gray ducks have uh, saved saved my morning. So I love them. They absolutely absolutely have. And a lot of people will tell you that they don't like the way they taste, but I've never had a problem with them. I'll be honest with you. I think it's like all these. All these duck species, it depends on what they're eating and what they eat varies both in in space, you know, whether they're up on the prairies or whether they're down on the on the Gulf Coast, as yeah. well as through time. Uh, and so, you know, my experience have always been in the South, at least for the most part, with the gadwall that I shoot. And I just mentioned Manitoba, <laughs> but those birds were great. Yeah, all the gadwall that I've eaten have been uh, have been very worthwhile. Maybe they're not as, as good as a wood duck or a mallard or a, a white uh, speckle belly. Or maybe those people just need to learn how to cook, right? So, what that could be that as well. You yeah. might be onto something there. Yeah. So, but no, that's a, and a, you, you can get a good looking Drake gadwall, and they um, they're, they're nothing to nothing to scoff at by beautiful by any stretch. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And you know, shooting them the last day of the season, uh, that's they're fully plumed out at that point. So I had a yep. a nice uh, a nice stack to choose from, and and the rest went in the uh, yep. into the skillet. So. Yeah. Hey, one other. Uh, I knew I was I was missing a couple of other states. I finally found this document that I was looking at here. Oregon, Washington. They also have a pretty sizable mallard population breeding in in those states. Huh. Uh, and again, so you got uh, California, Oregon, Washington. Those three. Those three. Uh, uh, West Coast states. They do their surveys. They are reported in this in this report. Now I and I, I I'm not sure if they factor. They probably factor into the western. Maybe into some of those uh, hunting regulations for western mallards. Again, I'm kind of getting out of my wheelhouse here. I'm not not at that table, but nevertheless, just wanted yeah. to give credit to those states for the surveys that they that they conduct. Well, good stuff, Mike. I certainly appreciate your time. I uh, hope it uh, 
hope that you enjoy a great summer, and I look forward to our next conversation. Hopefully it won't be uh, five or six years in between them next time. Yeah, let's make sure it's not. And, hey, <laughs> if uh, if there's if, if any of your listeners are, are interested in hearing more about this survey cancellation, um, we actually, the Ducks Unlimited podcast, is going to be interviewing – Dr. Ken Richkus, the the chief of the oh, Division cool. of Migratory Bird Management here, and uh, actually I think we're going to be recording that here uh, in a few days, and it'll be on the air mid-May, uh, maybe shortly after this one airs. So, um, so anyway, if if we could give a plug for that DU podcast, but also the message of people wanting to hear more about cancellation, what went into it, and hear directly from Dr. Richkus's mouth. Uh, what he thinks the situation is going to be, then yeah, look into the Ducks Unlimited podcast, and we'll we'll have that episode up here in mid mid late May. Absolutely, and and I'll encourage everyone to uh, get plugged in with their local DU chapter. I've been on the committee for uh, the Dallas chapter for gosh six or seven eight years now. It's been a long time, lots of fun, meet a lot of great folks who have the same interest in, as you, and all in the name of uh, conservation. So you'll get yep. plugged in. Very good, Mike. Thanks again, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you, Cable. So there he goes, Dr. Mike Brazier of Ducks Unlimited. Uh, Interesting stuff. And the thing that I'll take away more so than anything else is finally some hard evidence as to why the pintail has indeed struggled. We've we've heard opinions and thoughts for so long. Now uh, I think we have an answer. The uh, summer fallow grass. Not really a thing anymore for Canadian farmers. Uh, they've adopted the more rotational agricultural practices of, of modern times. So bad news for the pintail, no doubt. Uh, that segment of the show brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds and the Little Chingone. It's uh, the big Chingone's little buddy, right? But you can still fit your whole family in there. Now, kids might have to sit in your laps. But if you're looking for a blind for two to three people, Rifle blind that's comfortable, insulated. It's got carpet, cup holders, windows for both rifle or bow hunters. Check out the little chingone. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. And I have put all three kids and the dog in there. Uh, So, room enough. Coming up next, it's our good friend Jeff Barry of Kent Cartridge making his return to the Lone Star Outdoors show. And I've got $2 in the jukebox. Five dollars in a bottle Ten more just in case that don't do the trick Hey guys, Cable here to remind you that if you're looking for a handheld thermal monocular, Pulsar's got two great options, the Helion, uh, which was my favorite for a long time, and then the Axiom as well, which is a little more compact, uh, about the size of your cell phone, fits in your pocket, and at fourteen fifty nine ninety nine has the price tag to match, but still got all the great features you love from Pulsar. And get this, when you use my promo code Pulsar underscore PL, you'll get 20% off your order. That's right, 20% off when you check out at PulsarNV.com. Folks said that I would change my mind. I'd straighten up and do just fine. But I still love rock and roll. I keep on rolling with the flow. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, the late great Charlie Rich, rolling with the flow. Uh, thank you so much for being here today as 
We are set to continue talking uh, ducks, maybe mix in some turkey conversation. Actually, I'm sure we will, as uh, Jeff Barry of Kent Cartridge will be here. And I'll be honest, uh, I've been extremely impressed with what Kent has put out when it comes to uh, turkey loads here over the last couple of years. I mean, absolutely deadly stuff. And, and it's so easy to get behind a product that you believe in. And it's easy to believe in it when the turkeys don't even flop. They're just stone dead right where you shot them, <laughs> which I like. Uh, so anyway, uh, Jeff will join us momentarily. This segment of the presentation brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with locations in Marion and San Antonio, Texas. Josh and Becky have been taking care of all of my taxidermy needs for going on a decade now. It's been a long time, and they do amazing work. They also answer the phone when I call. Imagine that. A taxidermist not trying to dodge your phone calls. Uh, you can find them at gr8mounts.com. That's gr8mounts.com. Uh, well, let's bring him on right now, making his return to the show. Our good friend Jeff Barry of Kent Cartridge. Welcome back, man. Hey, Cable. Glad to be here. And it is my pleasure. So, uh, first of all, have you been out chasing any long beards in West Virginia? Absolutely, I have. I, I, I have to report that it's been unsuccessful so far. I have uh, a couple days left, but uh, it's been it's it's been a difficult go for me. So, uh, uh, so maybe uh, maybe luck will be on my side here the last few days of the season. Oh well, that sounds like my season last year. So I it, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> goes around comes around right yeah which i'm i'm so grateful to uh to have kent uh still support the show and you know here's a guy that's advertising our turkey loads and he can't even kill a damn turkey so uh <laughs> you know but this year has been a different story my friend and the uh the tk7 penetrator has just been knocking them upside the head and, and and they're you know the the hashtag you can't stop the flop they're not even flopping they're just dirt right there so oh yeah stone cold <laughs> <laughs> yep um, so one thing I was going to ask you, um, and this is totally, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but we had this guy, uh, West Virginia hunter. His name was, um, uh, Jared Ballard. I don't know if you saw this, but we, we actually had him on the show a few weeks ago and he got, he was hunting in Virginia. He's from West Virginia, but their season opened, I think a week before West Virginia. So he crossed the river and was hunting over there and ended up getting shot in the face by some old man who just shot at movement and uh I did see that. Yeah. And he was twenty nine yards away when he got shot. He told me he's like he was a sixty eight year old dude and he was like he was using sixty eight year old technology, thank God. Um if he's using a modern turkey load or a choke tube, you know, turkey choke, I'd be dead. So He's absolutely right. Yeah. And uh you know, I've been killing all of these turkeys this year, they were they weren't very far, but uh I did shoot a hog in my boxers at four in the morning with a flashlight uh was hunting in south texas and i kept hearing this crunching and we had like a, a camp pet that was a javelina it was just an old old javelina that was on you know knocking on death's door to be honest and so the outfitter would just put some corn out and we were sleeping under the stars to social distance appropriately so no tents and we didn't want to sleep in a hotel or a lodge or anything so I wake up and I'm thinking it's this javelina and I look over and it's like a 200 pound hog and I'm, Oh no. Yeah. I'm 10 yards away from it. So I got up and yelled and like he ran off and then he came back three more times. And on the, by the fourth time I had my, my 12 gauge in the TK seven and I smoked him. 
and uh, he ran off into the bushes and found him the next morning. He was he was two, over 200 pounds, and and that thing uh, I think he ran 20 yards maybe. Hey, well there we go. We might have a new marketing opportunity there. Uh, <laughs> you know, call it you know, call it the hog load. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Kent should definitely get into a, a tungsten hog load, no doubt. Um, but uh, but yeah, the tungsten is you know what probably is the most most lethal aspect of of this load. But I'm gonna let you talk about about the TK7 because uh, I've just been so impressed with it this season. Oh yeah, uh, it, it, it's truly a, a, a tremendous load, and we spend a lot of time on it. And one thing about Kent is is we always try to do something different than than what's out there in the marketplace. Or you know, we we noticed the TFS phenomena, and we we looked at things and we said, well, do we we jump on that bandwagon or do we do something different? And we wanted to do something different. And uh, with TK7, what you get is we, we did give up a little bit of density over the over the TSS product, uh, but what you get is more pellets per ounce. Okay, that allows us to uh, lighten the payload a bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a lighter payload than what you're seeing uh, uh, in in traditional TSS loads out there, and, and that lighter payload with essentially equal pellets what that gives you is two two advantages one it's managed recoil so it's not going to rattle your teeth it's a lot like shooting a, a heavy upland load okay and and then the uh the uh second advantage especially when you're talking tungsten is uh it is a little bit less expensive so it's a it's a uh more affordable for folks out there when compared to uh, uh, similar TSS loads. Uh, so you're getting very similar performance. You're getting managed recoil at an affordable price. And when you're talking 15 density versus 18 density and lethality on turkeys at, at most ranges that people want to get, you know, want to bring their turkeys into, it, it, it's absolutely stone dead lethal. Uh, so, and, and out to extended ranges as well. Uh, but we, we think most hunters like to get their turkeys in close and uh, we provide an off, awfully effective load for that. Did you see the uh, the pattern? Um, I think I posted on Facebook and I did put a video on Instagram of me patterning my shotgun with that load at 30 yards. Yeah, I did. And I, I tell you what, it's a, it's a very dense pattern. We spent a lot of time on that, uh, on the load development to get it right. And, and we, we we buffer it. Uh, there, there's just a process and how that how the shot is laid into the into the shell along with the buffer to make sure it patterns extremely uh, tightly. Uh, I, I would imagine you were pretty impressed with the pattern. I mean, it would have blown the turkey's head off. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, yeah. I was amazed because I had um, I had patterned it once last year, and I think I honestly just forgot about how many pellets are crammed into that shell but it's uh i i don't know how many how many pellets would you say are in the standard three inch tk7 12 gauge load it's so it's well over 300 oh wow yeah incredible um well yeah that's uh it's been something like i said been been very impressed with that and i've i told you off there i've pulled the trigger twice and killed three birds with it this year so it's uh it's been great for me um what about as we are talking about um, the status of this pandemic, and, and we had uh, Linda Powell on from Mossberg a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how you know the Trump slump's a thing of the past. I mean, guns are flying off the shelves at a 
you know, um, historic rate. She told me that Mossberg produced the most uh, guns that they ever had in a single day, like two weeks ago. Factories are open seven days a week, and they can't keep up with uh, demand. Now, you guys don't really um, dabble in the in the home defense. You're a hunting cartridge company, and you do it extremely well. Have have you seen an uptick in sales because other maybe because other stuffs uh, flying off the shelves along along with the guns? I don't know, but I figured I'd ask. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We have seen elevated demand, and and we see it more so in in the the point of the retail point of sale. We know it's selling at our retailers, mm-hmm. and we know their focus right now is on on the home defense type uh, uh, products, but we are seeing elevated uh, orders. Uh, we are seeing revised pre-bookings. Uh, uh, so we know that the inventory that's getting pulled off the shelves right now uh, uh, due to the uh, elevated uh, demand from the, from the end user uh, that is uh, translating into, into orders back in, in stock. So we're, we're, we're going full steam ahead in West Virginia loading as quickly as we can to support that. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. No doubt about that. Um, as we move forward, uh, I know your turkey season ends this weekend as well. Sadly, ours does too. Um, what about things for this coming fall? And uh, and, and I don't know, like production-wise, is this, this global situation going to affect uh, shot shell manufacturing companies' ability to keep up with the demand? Yes, it, it it could. Uh, we we do. Uh, it's a global economy, so there uh, we have components uh, in in our in our shotgun shells from all over the world, and so uh, specifically, we can't really say what. Uh, we we can't predict what supply chain interruptions we'll, we will have, sure. uh, but we do expect some. Uh, so uh, we we do expect some shortages, but we're we're planning for that. We're we're loading uh, core shot sizes, uh, core items, as opposed to some of the peripheral stuff, uh-huh. uh, just so we're in stock on our most popular items uh, to the to the best of our ability. So Fast Deal 2.0 obviously is a, a primary concern there it, it is and we are focusing production and, and and component utilization to make sure we stay well in stock on fast steel 2.0 because that's uh you know that that's our flagship line and we're going to make sure we uh, uh we we deliver uh near 100 percent on that and so last year was the the inaugural you know 2.0 release what was the overall reception by the the waterfowl community it it was tremendous uh the nice thing about it is the changes that we made were so subtle that that folks who were shooting our original fast deal could roll right into 2.0 and and experience the same level of performance we didn't try to reinvent the wheel so that's that's what we were so successful with it and it was really well received in the marketplace both from our retail and uh retailer uh customers and then from the end users as well. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I absolutely uh was impressed with it. And and like I've told you previously, I already loved, you know, the original Fast Steel, so to uh improve on something that was already such a great product and to do it at the price point that you do. I mean, it's not like you are you're paying um $30 a box like you you have to for some of the the I guess super premium loads out there. 
Yeah, and that's that's the thing that we we realized or we we needed to still keep Fast Deal 2.0 affordable. Uh, that that's how Fast Deal gained its popularity was was top level performance and an affordable price and and we we looked at all of our options on what we could improve uh, and 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 make it a better load but still keep it affordable for folks. I think uh, I think it turned out well for us. Let me ask you this: as far as um, going back to and, and there's a, a reason why I want to ask you this, but going back to the um, TK7. What is the price point on a box of five uh, turkey loads? It, it varies by retailer out there, but you're seeing it anywhere from uh, say say twenty seven ninety nine to to thirty one ninety nine a box. It's it it's about five dollars less, so a dollar per round less than a typical TSS load. Okay, so people, you know, and and I get it, but they just can't get over the idea of paying uh, six. Seven dollars per shot shell, right? But when you think about the amount of volume you're doing for for dove and ducks, um, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't pay that much. I get four turkey tags a year, and I damn sure want to want those turkeys on the ground when I am lucky enough to call one in, right? To pay five dollars for a shell to get a clean and ethical kill on a turkey, I mean, it's a no brainer for me. Absolutely, I. I... This can be said for about any type of hunting with a firearm, for the most part, that the ammunition is the cheapest part of your hunt. Mm-hmm. So even if you're using premium ammunition, you're, it's it, it, it's still the cheapest part of your hunt. And, and to have that added uh, added security of some knowing that you're going to get elite level performance, especially on a turkey where, where you have limited tags, it does make sense to maybe spend a little more yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, you certainly you certainly get what you pay for. And, and I'm going to be the first one to tell you, when I first started turkey hunting, I was like, oh, $10 for a box of uh, shells was uh, mind-blowing. I was like, this is way too expensive. But uh, then... But of course, I was waiting tables just to fund my my hunting addiction at the time. So <laughs> there, there, there you go. I've been there as well. Yeah. How many drinks do I have to sling to to make sure that I have turkey loads to get out this weekend. Um, as far as the upcoming waterfowl season, I'm sure that you saw the information that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had to cancel the uh, waterfowl habitat and uh, nesting production survey for the first time in 55 years. Yeah, that that was certainly a, it, disappointing. Uh, I, I obviously understand the reasons why. Uh at the same time, we're we're pretty pragmatic about it. We think there'll be some other factors that drive people out to hunt this year. Uh, social distancing being one of them, that's probably not going to be back to the new normal. So we do anticipate uh, some increased participation uh, this fall, even without uh, uh, those numbers. And I think that might be the silver lining in this whole thing. Um, and and I and I told you off there, you know, I lost a a big sponsor recently that just. They like we are just preparing for the uh, most meager of of financial you know years and and I get it um, but their their business model isn't dependent on how many people are in the field every year but I think the silver lining is that more people are going to be hunting and fishing because there's no place to better social distance than in the great outdoors. 
That, that's right. And I, I read something. I can't remember exactly where I read it. Uh, it was within the past week. Talked about this very dynamic that says whenever there's something that drives people in into the shooting sports or hunting or angling, an external event, we don't do the best at keeping them. Uh, it's it's a usually a short-lived phenomena. Whereas this could be different uh, if if this new normal and social distancing and, and stadiums that once held a hundred thousand people now may only ever hold half capacity or or, or what have you. Maybe it's our opportunity to keep some of these folks that have either been away from it for a while or are just getting into it. So uh, silver lining for, for sure. People have based their entire – and this is why I'm a huge Baylor football fan. Uh, they built that new stadium like six or seven years ago, and I yeah. have not been to a single game. Why? Because the games are in the middle of hunting season. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know? uh, I'm not saying I don't watch them on TV. I, I damn sure try to watch every one that I can. Same with the Cowboys. I'm I'm not going to the games because it interferes with my my true passion. So I wonder, like you said, how many other people are are now going to be kind of in that same boat. It's going to be it's yep. going to be fascinating to to see how this thing plays out. For sure, for sure. As we're as we're wrapping up here, Jeff, you've been fortunate to go on quite a few destination waterfowl hunts, and so out of the places and and the one that that I really want to do for me personally is like I'm infatuated by the nostalgia uh, and history and tradition of waterfowling in the Chesapeake Bay. That's what I want to do. I want to go hunt divers um, there and, uh, and go to those decoy, uh, you know, carving museums. Um, Out of all the trips you've taken, what would you say has been the most rewarding trip from a, a waterfowl enthusiast standpoint. Hmm. That 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 is a tough one because there's so many there's so many different ones. Uh, and and the the answer that I'm going to give you it's it's not because you're you're down in Texas, but uh, a, a year ago or two years ago, I went down to uh, uh, flew into Harlingen, Texas. I may have mispronounced the name, but I was down there uh, around Padre Island hunting, uh-huh. and it was 80 degrees, and we're hunting everything from redheads to, you know, pintails. To, I mean, you, you name it. I was absolutely amazed hunting in, in the Laguna Madre uh, and awesome. and how we went about hunting. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, there's a lot of ways to hunt ducks. Mm-hmm. And it was a tremendous experience because as a kid growing up in Nebraska, hunting on the Platte River in a pit blind in the in the freezing cold, you never really thought about hunting in 80 degree weather other than, other than early teal season. Uh, but, you know, hunting in salt water uh, uh, in 80 degree weather in November and how much fun it was. So it was so different, uh, and I, I just enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, so that 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 would probably be the most rewarding, uh, just by realizing the diversity of, of waterfowl hunting. Hmm. Very cool, and and awesome that uh, you came down here to my home state to experience that uh, hunting. That those those salt flats is is certainly a lot of fun, and and can get a diverse bag, uh, no doubt about that. Did you guys get any model ducks? Uh, 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 yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there was one other group that, that got into them pretty good that day. Oh, that's awesome. Um, my 
like I told you, where my bucket list, the top of my bucket list is is certainly Chesapeake Bay. Also want to do Canada sometime, but my favorite duck hunt, certainly from last season, and something that was new to me was I went up to Kansas and we hunted public water. And I mean, when I say we limited out on greenheads every day, it was it was it was like nothing I've never I've ever seen in Texas. And the birds just kept flying all day, all day long. Uh, we didn't we didn't shoot hens for the most part. Uh, there was like six or seven of us, and at the end of the hunt, you know, we were just looking at this pile of mallards that, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. You must have timed it just perfect with the uh, with, with a nice that that's awesome. That's that's very similar to to what I what I grew up with on really good days, and I know Kansas, Oklahoma, you can really get that. That's that that's tremendous cable. Yeah, it was a blast, and 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 it was oh my gosh, it was so cold. It was like fourteen degrees, and. I, uh, being the horrible four-legged, uh, parent that I am forgot Belle's vest. So she was, uh, she was a little chilly, but at least she had a lot, a lot of work to do and that, that kept her warm. Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool stuff, Jeff. I, I certainly appreciate it. I, I do want to do a, uh, let's do a quick giveaway. I know you guys are always up for that. Uh, you want to do turkey, dove, or a, a box of, uh, of, uh, 2.0? Uh, let's do 2.0 that's uh, that's our flagship and I'd, I'd love it if it gets into the hands of someone who's new to kent okay and here's oh. what we're going to do we're going to just say uh email the answer to this question when was kent cartridge founded and just uh, email that answer into lone star outdoors show at gmail.com and we will send the first person a box of uh, 2.0 sound good sounds perfect cable love it all right, well, Jeff, I certainly appreciate it, and uh, we gotta we gotta actually make plans to uh, share a duck blind coming up sometime here in the near future. This fall, we gotta make that happen. Well, I will look forward to it, my friend. We will talk to you soon. Sounds great, Cable. Thank you. All right, Jeff Barry of Kent Cartridge. Always like talking ducks and turkey with Jeff. Uh, that segment of the presentation, by the way was proudly brought to you by our luck outfitters offering the finest in newfoundland moose hunting i took a big bull there in october and i don't want you to think of it as a, a blue collar hunt but it is certainly an affordable moose hunt compared to say going to the yukon or alaska so if moose is on your bucket list give our luck a call you can find them at ourluckoutfitters.com uh, unfortunately just looking at the clock we got to go got to get out of here thanks to jeff as well as our other guest today, Dr. Mike Brazier of Ducks Unlimited. We'll be back with a brand new show, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Brother again